we have been uh, uh, moving forward on, on some renovations, working on getting a, a bathroom upstairs as promised uh, so that there's a bathroom on that level and, and doing a variety of other things. And of course, uh, we started with a modest budget and have almost cut that budget in half. And so one of the ways that we're um, sort of making up the difference is by repurposing items whenever we have an opportunity to do that. So uh, the bathroom's taken up repurposing part of the old library and, and the uh, new library is gonna have shelves that are repurposed wood from, uh, from the pews that we've taken out. So there's this whole process of repurposing saves us, you know, $100 here and $1,000 there. And uh, I like to think that I'm pretty good at that, taking things. And this is kind of, this is kind of a hot trend right now, right? So repurposed stuff and uh, repurposing things in industry and, and you crafters, I know you're always uh, taking the found materials and repurposing them for, for other things. I like to think that I'm pretty good at doing that, pretty creative um, and that I got that maybe from my grandfather. My grandfather was a really good uh, repurposer. Uh, they didn't call it that back then. They called it being poor. And as, uh, as my grandfather was a uh, blacksmith and a sharecropper in, uh, in Missouri, down around Sykeston in the 1930s, and like many men of his generation, you, just, you, don't, you don't throw things away. Uh, you find a new use for them. And I always was impressed at his ability to do that. Now, the stuff that he made never looked like much, so you crafters would not be proud of him. But I was always very proud of him because he could take like an old coffee can, cut in the tin and take it out to his little workshop in the garage and beat on it for a while and come in with something completely different. So most of the utensils in his kitchen drawer were made of something else. He was just really good at that. Uh, he always impressed me, but the truth is, the real master at repurposing is Jesus. Just, just look at, at Mark chapter 1. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. See, Jesus means to repurpose the lives of his disciples. He's going to give them a new purpose, a new identity. In fact, in the original, uh, in the original Greek, it doesn't so much read, I'm going to send you out to fish, it's I'm going to make you to become fishermen of men. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you into something else. You're going to have a new purpose. And I, I, I think we could probably all agree that as they set out on that day, they don't know much about the journey. They, they drop what they're doing. They drop their nets and they follow Jesus. And I think that's a really great uh, visual, a great picture for us of, of what kind of is transpiring in this transaction. But they don't know much about where Jesus is going to take them, but the one thing that's implicit in this arrangement is that he will repurpose them. He will make them to be 
something new. That sort of goes along with the passage that we read uh, a couple of weeks ago from Matthew 16, verse 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, Who want, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And I made the point two weeks ago, I'll make it again today, that self-denial and the engagement of the mission are prerequisite to following Jesus. We can't start with following Jesus and then get around to self-denial and taking on the mission. Denying ourselves and taking on the mission, that's part of what it means to be following Jesus. And that really brings us today to our fourth mission principle. But let's review the first, um, the first three mission principles first. Mission principle number one, Jesus is the source of the mission. That's where it all comes from. Mission principle number two is that the mission is the purpose of the church. Jesus' mission is why we're here. No other mission that we might choose for ourselves is as important as that one. Mission principle number three, the mission of Jesus is making disciples. Now that brings us to mission purpose number four, which is disciples of Jesus are surrendered to Jesus. Now, that's implied, right? When we say Jesus is Lord, or we say Jesus is King, that suggests that he's in charge, that we are in fact surrendered, that we are his subjects. But the question is, where exactly does Jesus actually reign? Because surrender is surprisingly difficult to accomplish. I think in some ways that these first disciples had something of an advantage. Because in that moment, actually following Jesus means that they've got to drop what they're doing. They've got to leave that behind. They've got to give that up in order to go with him. See, one of the things, if we're going to be repurposed, one of the things that we have to understand is that there has to be a removal of our old purpose in order for that new purpose to take effect. And if in the process of coming to follow Jesus, as we understand that concept, we haven't moved, we haven't surrendered anything, we haven't left anything behind, the question then is, what exactly is Jesus leading? See, discipleship is our missional purpose and a prerequisite of realizing that new purpose is self-denial. But immediately there are some problems with that because American culture abhors self-denial. This is just rejected as a, as a concept, really, really hates it. We're not about self-denial. In fact, we're pretty convinced that self-denial is downright unhealthy and un-American. We're much more interested in our self-obsession. We have kind of graduated culturally from the me generation of the 70s to the selfie generation of today. People have more pictures of themselves than of anyone else. We are f completely fascinated with ourselves, and, and we advocate for self-love and for self-image and for self-promotion uh, and self-improvement. We're all about this stuff. 
decades ago, when I was in high school, actually, Whitney Houston was singing about learning to love yourself. It is the greatest love of all. Do you get that? Not, not loving God, not loving God. No, the greatest love that you can participate in is loving yourself. I started doing a little research, looking at modern musicians. Hadn't gotten any better. Modern pop singers, rap singers, whatnot. They can't stop talking about how great they are. We are obsessed with the self. You say, well, wait a minute. Isn't self-esteem important? Well, is it? You know, self-esteem as a concept is a couple hundred years old. Yeah, didn't exist for all of human history. It's a couple hundred years old, which is still, in terms of social sciences, going pretty far back. But it really didn't reach popularity until the 1960s. Oh, there's a surprise. became very popular in the 1960s, and by the 1980s and 90s, we were incorporating self-esteem curriculum into public schools. I had that curriculum. You probably did, too. And here's why it was there. Some social science researchers started studying this question, and they found out that students who had higher self-esteem got better test scores. They said, well, if we can raise the self-esteem of our students, they'll all do better. They said, we implement this self-esteem curriculum. Well, you let another 10, 20 years pass by, and then they start retesting everything again. Guess what they found? Academically, everybody did worse, but they all felt better about themselves. It turns out that the self-esteem that they were measuring was a result of the fact that people had scored well on their tests. Didn't score well on their tests because they felt good about themselves. They felt good about themselves because they were doing well academically. But the machine rages on. We have continued to separate merit from esteem until today, every young idiot with a social media account thinks their opinion actually matters even if they have accomplished nothing. Turns out, there is a distinct difference between earned esteem and what we now call global esteem. Global esteem is how you feel about yourself regardless of your circumstance. Global esteem can be high, it can be low, has really nothing to do with how you function. What does the church have to say about all of this? This is where the culture has been going, but what does the church have to say about it? Uh, when I was a kid growing up in the church, we used to sing this little song, Joy, the Joy song. J-O-Y, J-O-Y, this is what it means. Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. <gasps> what? 
Hasn't the culture told us how wrong this is? What sort of a self-loathing, oppressive cult are you Christians running? Putting yourself last, Jesus first and others before yourself? That can't work, can it? Well, Matthew 22, here's what Jesus says. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. And with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. There it is. Self-denial in a nutshell. Love God, love others. But this message has not been culturally approved. And so the American church has tried to moderate self-denial. Turns out, culturally speaking, I surrender all is no longer a culturally marketable message. And so we've just changed it. Now it's, I surrender some. Some to thee, my precious Jesus. On Sundays, between 10 and 11.05, on the weeks when I'm not working, playing, or sleeping, I surrender some. Is that harsh? Let me ask you, what is the actual evidence of our self-denial? What's the evidence that we actually live for Jesus? I always thought Jesus' message was love God and love others. But apparently that's not right, because since the 80s, I've been hearing in the church that the message, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, what we're supposed to take away from that is that you need to love yourself. That you have to love yourself before you can love others. That's the takeaway from Jesus' words. Can I just tell you, this doesn't even make logical sense. I don't know, it sounds good. What are we saying? If you don't feel good about yourself, you have no compassion or empathy for others, you're incapable of love. People who don't like themselves are actually the monsters of our culture? Or is the opposite true? People who love themselves too much tend to be the monsters of our culture who are incapable of empathy, incapable of compassion. I want you to like yourself, but that's a different thing altogether, isn't it? Jesus says these words, he assumes everyone loves themselves, even if they don't like themselves. You have to love yourself first, completely misses the point. So somehow, loving God and loving others becomes this message about loving me. And when Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, 
but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, well, there's a tall order, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. That seems pretty straightforward, but no, somehow the message is not that we're actually supposed to value others more than ourselves. And when Jesus talks about denying yourself, he's not really talking about self-denial. What it really means is continue to serve your own purposes, but be nicer. Here's the truth of the matter. We, me included, as all of us, we are naturally inclined towards self-centeredness. We don't need practice or training to be self-centered. We need practice and training to overcome being self-centered. When Jesus says, as you love yourself, this is our natural state. Now, you've got to remember, when we talk about Greek love, we're not necessarily talking about a lot of warm, mushy feelings. We're talking about what you actually do. And what we actually do is serve our own interest. We will naturally serve our own interest. Nobody has to cue us in on this. Now, that's not to say that some of the things that we do, supposedly in our own interest, will be, not be self-destructive. Sometimes they will be. But we will, by our nature, do what we think is good for us. And the very countercultural message that Jesus has for us is that you want to take that impulse to do for yourself and apply it to others. Do for them first. But this is complicated today because we are culturally inclined towards narcissism. You know what narcissism is. Narcissus is this mythological character who fell in love with his own reflection. So narcissism is this problem of being so uh, impressed with oneself that you begin to think that you are the center around which everything else should rotate. Now let's talk about how this works a little bit. We all emerge from the womb self-centered, right? We think that we are the, the center because all we know is what we're feeling and what we're experiencing. We all emerge from the womb completely focused on our own needs and expecting everybody else to revolve around us. But at that point, that's a survival mechanism. We all understand that. We adapt ourselves to the needs of an infant because that's all they're really capable of at that point. If, by grade school, we're still acting as if the world revolves around us, then we experience that child, in technical terms, as a brat. If you get to high school and you think that the world revolves around you, well, 
We've sort of learned to expect this. But it's still ugly. Our assumption traditionally has been that when they step into the real world, they'll get a different kind of education that will educate this out of them. I'm not sure that's true anymore. If you somehow manage to reach into adulthood and you are still thinking and acting as if you are the center of the universe, that's just grotesque. That's narcissism. And up until recently, we regarded that as a personality disorder. Except now, the culture has come to endorse narcissism. See, whatever oppression, whatever brokenness, whatever victimization, whatever extremely obscure identity that you can claim, no matter how pointless, no matter how delusional, the world says it's brave for you to not only embrace that identity, but to expect everyone in your circle to acquiesce and revolve around you. The scary thing is, is that we've brought our narcissism to church. Not only do we imagine that the church is here to meet our needs and meet our expectations, but man, we've got Jesus himself circling around us. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And we've got this different gospel that says not only can we do things out of selfish ambition, but Jesus will be the head supporter and cheerleader of our selfish ambition. We have tried to craft a discipleship without any self-denial, such that my life, my time, my avocation, my money, none of this belongs to Jesus. It all belongs to me. But I'm such a nice person that I give him bits of it from time to time. We haven't received a new purpose. In so many ways, we're still serving the old purpose. We just think Jesus is our wingman. And without self-denial, we cannot realize our true purpose. Without self-denial, inevitably, our real purpose, when you strip everything else away, our real purpose is self-indulgence. And self-indulgence is a vampire of a purpose. It leaves the person who's holding it as the walking dead. But not only that, they drain the life out of everyone and everything around them. Our friends, our families, our spouses, even our churches. And I got, I got, I got some hard news for you. Most people never actually grow out of their self-centeredness. Most people just learn to hide it better. We cannot be imitators of Christ while serving selfish ambition and self-indulgence. 
And so when we come to Christ, that is the brokenness that we surrender. But let's face it, all of us are kind of loath to give it up. And so self-denial is the beginning point, but it's also the single greatest hurdle to following Jesus. This is where the journey begins, because once we let go of self, once we let go of our old purpose, our old self, all manner of miraculous things can happen. And Jesus says he's going to give us a new purpose, he's going to give us new meaning, he's going to give us new identity, he is going to make us to become what he needs us to be, he's going to bring about a transformation. He doesn't say exactly where we're going or how we will get there. That is up to faith, and we do not like to surrender that control. And so rather than trailing Jesus, we would like the universe to continue to revolve around us, and we would like Jesus to come into the mix and revolve with them. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Here's the crazy thing. I'm not reading any passages to us this morning that we don't already know quite well. And all of these passages say, I am not first. And culturally, we found that message very, very hard to accept. Our life our self is the first thing that needs to go on the altar. There is no surrender without sacrifice. And this is the very first one we make. And the funny thing is this. As we really surrender the purpose of self-love and self-care, turn it over to God, Learn to love God. Learn to love Jesus. Learn to love others. These remarkable things happen. We actually really begin to like the person that Jesus is making us to become. See, we've been doing self-esteem backward. We make everybody feel good about themselves, and then they'll do the right thing. No, actually, it's just the opposite do the right thing, you'll like yourself more. James says as much in James 4.10. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Not me. It's not my job to take care of my self-esteem. It's not my job to make sure that I'm comfortable. It's not my job to make sure I get enough rest. I humble myself to God and He will provide. He will lift us up. And so I leave you this morning with some questions. I think that we, we need to be asking as we try to figure out 
what this journey looks like for us as individuals and as a church moving forward from here. And the first question is this, what are the parts of your life that you are more qualified than Jesus to manage? Your time, your work, your money, your family. Does Jesus need us to manage the church for him because he can't handle it? And then the question is, who exactly is following who? Are we following Jesus or Somehow has our weird concept of the Christian faith come, Jesus has become part of my life. I still sit on the throne, but he's there advising me. Who's following who? Because folks, if we are flavoring our life with Jesus to distract ourselves from the fact that we're really living about selfish ambition and self-indulgence, just quit now. Whose purpose is giving your life meaning? Where's that purpose come from? You live for something in this world? Let's face it. Christ offers us a higher purpose. We've got to examine this life. Look at what we do with ourselves. Look at how we spend our time, our resources, how we engage others, how we function as a church, and we've got to determine, is all of that serving his purpose or mine? And then the question is, is your purpose temporary or eternal? Because a hundred years from now, most of what we do won't matter. There's a good chunk of what we do that probably won't matter next year. The question is, what, what matters forever? Oh, we choose some good purposes sometimes. I'm not disputing that. Sometimes we, we do good things with our life. We invest in our families. We invest in other people. We, we love on them. But if that ends when we die or when they die, it's not an eternal purpose. We need to serve purposes that will exist into the new kingdom. And finally, there's a question that we ask our kids at Honor Club. Are you a fountain or are you a drain? Are you adding something or are you always taking away? As we embrace the future of this congregation, are you a source of life? Are you a source of truth? Are you a source of love? Of Christian service? Are you a source of fellowship? Are you building up the kingdom? Or are you just a drain? Are you just a vampire? Serving your own purposes and sucking the life out of things. We have a choice all the time. 
in every interaction, we have a choice. We can honor God. We can honor each other. We can be life givers. We can be truth speakers. We could be kingdom builders. Or we can serve a different agenda. It won't get us anywhere. I want to challenge you this morning to embrace self-denial as the way that Jesus is going to use to make yourself all that you desire it to be.